K-A-L-W. It's still kind of unusual, even today, to be doing this when you have the internet. A local photographer takes his craft back to the basics. We have these fundamental human parts of us that you don't even need to speak that language to understand. Today, we meet an analog photographer working in a digital world. Then, friends of disability activist Alice Wong talk about her memoir. Having joy as a disabled person is almost a rebellion. And we meet a lawyer who works with Black migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. They obviously stick out as the people that don't belong in that society and are not part of that country. So people target them easily. Bearing witness to the human experience, I'm Hanat Baba, and this is Cross Currents. Today we start with another story from our series, At Work, where we learn about the jobs in the Bay Area and meet the people that do them. I have a lot of pride in my work. How do you do it? Sprays, masks, gloves. I'm with the Swamp Team. Hi, my friends, and how are you? It's nice now with technology. Pandora's box has been opened. It's a beautiful way to make your living, but it's more work than I ever imagined. Jared Lamont wasn't always a photographer. He worked in tech, but burned out from being a coder. So he dropped everything to move to Alaska for adventure and to hone his skills in photography. Now Jared is back in the Bay, and he doesn't use social media to share his images. As KELW's Kelby McIntosh tells us, he has a more analog way of connecting with his subjects. I first met Jared at the Pleasant Hill BART station. He completely stood out from the stark background of business workers I'm used to seeing, with his messy bun and black hoodie with a big picture of a salmon on the back. He was carrying this old-fashioned, beat-up suitcase. When he opened it up, there were hundreds of photographs, images of blue-collar workers, fishing boats, and nature. He wasn't charging for these photos, but was giving them away. A few days after our conversation, Jared invited me to a photo session he was setting up in front of the Apple Store in downtown Walnut Creek. It's an ironic place to do this kind of thing, to yeah. give something away for free and to be on the street just, I don't want to say performing, but in a way, a little bit, you know, just being um, not a street vendor because I'm not selling anything, I'm giving photos away, but um, Again, it's just kind of an interesting place to do it because for me, obviously, this is a priority. He says he's not trying to generalize about everyone in Walnut Creek or people who go to an Apple store. But it's still kind of unusual even today to be doing this when you have the internet. I'm kind of, again, doing the opposite thing. He's an analog guy in a digital world. I ride my bike to wherever I'm going. So basically, I either have some kind of canvas or cloth that I lay down on the street where I'm going to set up. It's probably, I don't know, five by nine feet. And his beat-up suitcase, which he bought for $30 from an old woman in Los Angeles that looked like it was plucked from some bygone era. One of the locks is busted, but it still holds good together. And um, I just like it because it, it's probably 70 or 80 years old. and. Um, 
it still has quality and functions well, and it protects the images. Jarrett wasn't always like this. He used to work in tech, typing away at his computer, working long hours, getting lost in the ones and zeros as a coder for PayPal. But Jarrett longed to be a photographer and dreamed of taking pictures of the Alaskan backcountry, as far away as you could get from coding in Silicon Valley. He lived on fishing boats and took pictures of animals, portraits of dock workers and bartenders and people working for a living to convey what he was learning. We are so similar, even though we can be so culturally different. We have these fundamental human parts of us that you don't even need to speak that language to understand. And that was kind of how I got by out there a lot of the time, you know? He learned how to strip down his images. One picture that stood out to me was of an overhead cabin room dresser with the words support blue collar workers scribbled on it. To me, it was very simplistic and powerful picture. Yeah, the goal is to try to communicate that as best I can. He says his time in Alaska made him reflect on his childhood. When I was 10 or 11, I can't remember, my family lost their house. Our cars got repossessed. My parents filed bankruptcy, and I didn't really see my dad a whole lot after that. And that, too, is equally as important as why I do this stuff, because it's just material stuff. It comes, it goes, and it caused a lot of devastation for my family to be in pursuit of all that. Jarrett was drawn back to the Bay Area to take care of his ailing mother. But those lessons he learned in Alaska stuck. That's why he takes and gives away photos. Since being back, he's taken a job as a bartender to help with his mother's medical expenses and to fund his next photography project. I have a goal to make a, a, a zine from Alaska with this uh, handmade paper that gives it that weird, timeless feel. Remixing his photos into something completely different. It's like punk rock photo, just like dirty dive bar bathroom feel. In Jared's creative process, he further explained the zine and other future projects. So I wanted to know if his work would keep him in the Bay Area. I think it depends on my mom's health and my mom's situation. For right now, this is what it is, but would definitely like to hit the road and get it, take it to another place. And I don't even know, just like get a car for a couple grand and maybe do it across America. I don't know. Just pull up, stop until all the photos are gone. In Walnut Creek, I'm Kelby McIntosh for Cross Currents. Kelby is a current fellow in our Audio Academy training program. And KELW is now accepting applications for our three-month summer news training program. If you're an early career radio reporter who wants to gain experience in a supportive and creative newsroom, come learn with us. The deadline to apply is March 12th. Go to KELW.org summer to find out more.
You're listening to Cross Currents. From KALW News, I'm Hannah Baba. Passionate, ambitious, courageous. In Chinese culture, these are a few personality traits for people born in the year of the tiger. People like disability activist Alice Wong. In her memoir, Year of the Tiger, Alice writes about her life and activism from Indiana to San Francisco, as well as her love for good food and red lipstick. Alice was born with a progressive neuromuscular disability, and last summer she became seriously ill. A collapsed lung, the inability to swallow, among other things, caused her to be hospitalized for a month. Alice lost her ability to speak, so she wasn't available to be interviewed about her memoir. And that's why her friends are stepping in for her. Emily Nussbaum teaches disability studies at Mills College of Northeastern University. And Teresa Nguyen is the director of the Community Living Equity Center at Brandeis. They both spoke to KLW's Janae Darden. Teresa, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Emily, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me as well. So I'm so happy you all are here to talk about this book. Alice Wong's book, Year of the Tiger, the the style of the book is really just so unique. It's like part autobiography. It's a scrapbook. It's a time capsule. It's really unique. It's funny. Somebody called it an anti-memoir. Um, <laughs> I saw a review of it because it's just so out of the box with the style of how she tells her life. What are your thoughts about the book style, about the uniqueness of it? I think the style actually is pretty awesome in its way of encouraging maybe new authors or individuals who are really interested in publishing stories about their lives to really maybe stray away from the traditional memoir styles and biography styles. Emily, you would add? I totally agree, Teresa. And I know when I first opened the book, when I first got it, and just sort of doing that sort of flip through that you do. I was so excited that there were images and photographs and drawings and recipes and stories, of course, but then also kind of manifesto statements. It was so exciting to see. And and in addition to, to what Teresa offered, I think that that also promotes sort of a greater accessibility of the book. Teresa, Alice refers herself as a cyborg oracle throughout the book. And I know she's been doing that online, too, as well. What is a cyborg oracle? (laughs) That's a great question. To me, I'm disabled. I have a, a brittle bone disease called osteogenesis imperfecta. I'm very short. I use a power wheelchair. And like, to me, I just, I don't know, but it just speaks to me as like something that I really identify with. I I feel my close friends will understand this, but I often refer to myself as like an alien, <laughs> um, you know, from, from another universe who's here and, and just kind of like observing Earth and how absurd it is. But I kind of relate to that, to her calling herself a cyborg oracle as the same concept as the alien concept that I use. It's futuristic. It's advanced. It's almost like we know everybody's secrets. Emily, you want to jump in? I Sorry, I'm like feeling a little emotional thinking of Alice and her wiseness and everything that she has brought together 
and put into the world, right? From the Disability Visibility Project. In part of my professional role as a um, university professor and teaching, I use disability visibility as a foundational text in a handful of my courses. And each opportunity that I get to re-engage with it with students, many of whom identify as disabled and multiply marginalized in other ways. What Alice has brought together in the world has such a profound impact for them and opens up a world that many of these young people that I get the opportunity to teach and learn with didn't know existed. I want to talk about language. And Alice, I feel like, defies stereotypes of Asian women and disabled people as being meek, not only just through her her actions and the things that she's done, but through language. And I really noticed that in the book, you know, in the book, she's assertive, but at the same time, she's also vulnerable. You see that in the book. What are the ups and downs to that? That's, that's a really good point, Janae. And I think just from my own experiences and background, I think having a disability kind of forces you with no choice to, to be both to have to be vulnerable, but then also have to be pretty assertive about your needs, about, you know, uh, what you prefer, your preferences, um, all of that. I noticed Joy comes up in Alice's memoir and in her work. And I interviewed Alice in 2020. Here's a clip from that discussion where we talk about Joy. And I think we don't see enough Joy. You know, I think one of the ways we do stay alive Mm-hmm. is finding joy in one another. Mm-hmm. I mean, that to me is what's helped me is the relationships I have with people making time for myself, eating desserts. But yeah, we have to make space for joy and we have to take pleasure in what we can because there is joy in being disabled. I think that goes against almost every major kind of idea. Yes, it does. Or narrative or portrayal. If you actually talk to people who have these disabilities, it's like, I'm just living my life the best way I can. You know, just just like everybody else. It's really the oppression and the low expectations people have of us that's really Mm -hmm. super, super toxic and you know, that's what needs to be dismantled. So, so joy and friendship and just hearing that quote, um, what comes to mind for you? Just final thoughts. I think Alice is so wise in that quote that we just heard. And I so agree, again, as a disabled woman myself, like life is too short to not find joy in all of the things. And I think that you know, Alice is right. I mean, having joy as a disabled person, like, is almost a rebellion to society's view of of our community. And like, just in that, I find that extremely satisfying. That quote so beautifully speaks to the notion of relationship and relationality kind of being essential. 
I think also of relationships, both in how Teresa talked about it, right? These really important kinds that sustain us sort of in one-on-one or in our daily kinds of lives as we go through the world. But then I also think of that quote from Alice and how it speaks to some of these kind of relational networks that connect us in strange and really wonderful ways. That was Teresa Nguyen and Emily Nussbaum speaking with KLW's Janae Darden. That interview was co-produced by Porfirio Rangel. Alice Wong's memoir is Year of the Tiger, An Activist's Life. And go to our website to hear a longer version of that interview. This is Cross Currents. I'm Hanat Baba. In conversations around the border migrant crisis, oftentimes the stories of Black migrants and asylum seekers are overlooked. When they show up, oftentimes they encounter racism. They don't find officers or lawyers who speak their languages. They end up hungry and desperate. Last month, Oakland's Priority Africa Network screened a film called Las Abogadas, featuring women immigration lawyers who help migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. Wow. How are you? I'm fine. Where are you from? I'm from Haiti. Haiti. Okay, nice. But when you say you want to cross, how how are people here going to be able to cross? Is there numbers? That was the voice of Mulu Alamayu, an Ethiopian-American lawyer. She leads the Border Task Force. It's an association of volunteers and nonprofits who provide legal and social services to asylum seekers. I spoke with her, and first she described the conditions of the migrants she met at the border. They they were desperate. They didn't know how they're going to be able to survive. Their money was running out, their food was running out, and they were not able to reach an immigration officer. We saw that there were lines of people early in the morning, but very few people were able to go in and the rest were turned back and they were going back again. And everybody was hungry, cold. It was just a very, very sad situation that was happening at the border. Mm. So you go and you, you you went kind of as an observer at first. What made you decide, I want to actually do something and work with these people at the border? That decision came honestly from that first day that I met with my Eritrean brothers and sisters in their hotels. Mm. And uh, once we were done, we were going to walk back uh, through the border with my sister. They offered to see us through. And they walked with us all the way up to the border. And even now, when I think about it, it chokes me uh, because I've, I was able to go through right. and they were. Yeah, yeah. And the desperate look on their face was something that I could not go back again and be able to try to at least give them a little bit of a sense of hope. Look, you can do this. What is it that I can help you with? Right. And Black immigrants aren't talked about a lot in the border conversation nationally. Mm-hmm. So you met Eritrean people. Who else are we talking about when we talk about Black 
migrants at the border. We're talking about Ethiopians, Eritreans, Cameroonians, Haitians, a lot from all over the world, really, even Black Cubans, a lot of the Black migrants from different parts of the world and from Africa, as well as, well as the Caribbean. But the majority that I encounter right now are Cameroonian and Haitians. Mm. And I want to talk about Title 42. It's the process that's allowed the U.S. to expel more than 2 million migrants from the border, including many Haitian asylum seekers. Here in the Bay Area, there were protests and rallies about this. Can you talk a little bit about what Title 42 means to asylum seekers at the border. I think you said before it's, it acts as an invisible wall. Yes, it really does act as an invisible wall. And Title 42 is really something that the previous administration, in all the things that it was trying to implement to make it difficult, if not nearly impossible, for migrants to be able to come in, was happy to find this section in the law during the pandemic that they could use as an excuse to say, because of pandemic reasons and because of health reasons, we have a right to expel or deny entry to people that are seeking entry at the border. So it was their way of an added layer of trying to make sure that they shut down the uh, the ability for migrants to be able to come to the U.S. and seek refuge. But it continued on, even with this administration, where we thought we may be able to see a difference. But even with this administration, we see it still there. And the Supreme Court also allowed it to stay on. And now they're saying they're in the process of removing it. But even just yesterday, another policy is being considered where this administration itself is trying to create another invisible wall Mm. of not allowing migrants to come in. And what are some of the unique issues that a Black migrant will face that perhaps others don't? I can tell you how Black migrants have an added layer of persecution because of the color of their skin when they're at the border in Mexico or in the Latin American countries, and how not allowing them to get an exemption to be able to come into the U.S. really makes them go back to their persecutors in these countries. And the reason I say that is because these are countries that are already strained financially, and an added stress of financial stress of having to deal with migrants makes residents angry. This is human nature. Mm. They obviously stick out as the people that don't belong in that society and are not part of that country. So people target them easily, and people harm them easily. And for them to have to stay extended period of time in those countries is really a second place where they're being persecuted outside of their countries. In immigrant communities who are established in the U.S., sometimes there's this question of, well, we came the legal way. Why should we support people who are coming in a different way than we came, right? And why should we care? And why should we advocate for them? Mm-hmm. What, what do you say to them? Very good question. Excellent question. Actually, the people that were able to come the right way did not have that sense of desperation or fear in their countries. They are the ones that were lucky and entitled to be 
able to come the proper way because they had the means or they didn't have the fear of having to run away right now for the sake of saving their lives. The people that we see coming through the border are the people that absolutely are afraid of staying in their countries, have an absolute fear of being harmed or killed in their countries. And that is the reason that they take those routes. The routes they take are very dangerous. It's through so many countries, through so many hardships and people dying and passing over corpse is how they describe how they get to this country. And even with the people that are smuggling them in per se, or assisting them to come through all the borders, really abusing them and taking advantage of them. So no one would go through that type of process or that type of hard route, unless they had an absolute fear mm. for their safety mm -hmm. or fear for their lives. So that is why we should we should assist them because those are the people that absolutely need our protection and refuge. Finally, this kind of work that you have chosen for yourself, it carries a lot of emotional weight. Mm -hmm. It is difficult. How are you personally and how does this weigh on you and how do you care for yourself? Mm -hmm. I'm lucky, I say to myself, in the sense that I have this deep faith in my religion as an Orthodox Christian, an Ethiopian Orthodox Christian. So I always fall back to my prayers, and I always fall back to uh, meditation as well. It makes me get the strength. As much as it's traumatic, it, it also gives me the strength to get up in the morning and to do it again. Mulu, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Hannah. That's Ethiopian-American lawyer Mulu Alamayu. She leads the Border Task Force. They provide legal and social services to asylum seekers. We've got a link to the film Las Abogadas at KELW.org slash crosscurrents. And that interview was produced by Priscilla Naankra. Today's Cross Currents team includes Astrid Fedel, James Rollins, Ghanadi Joe Johnson, Victor Tense, Shirin Adil, Lisa Morehouse, Marissa Ortega-Welch, Sunni Khalid, and Ben Trefni. Our opening theme music is by the John Santos Quintet as interpreted by Daoud Anthony. For Cross Currents, I'm Hanat Baba. Baba.